as we continue in our series uh, through the Gospels and asking from Scripture, what is this thing called the church? What is the church according to Scripture? We have a very important passage before us this morning. And uh, it comes from John chapter 3. Like I said, most of our texts this morning are coming from John chapter 3. Uh, but before we read that text, let me introduce what we'll find there this way, a peculiar way. I've told you before that from time to time I have peculiar dreams. I have weird dreams. You may remember the dream where our senior or our assistant pastor was trying to steal my DNA and trying to get a syringe in my arm and trying to clone me. I still don't understand where that dream came from. But I had another weird dream this week, um, and I'm, I'm going to tell you my dream because I think it shares a common thread that all of us experience. And the dream was simply this. GPC was going to host a ordination, not an ordination, an installation service for a missionary. And of course, dreams are weird. They don't make sense. Uh, this is actually a former student of mine who's now in France. And I already spoke at her installation two years ago. But for some reason, we were going to have an installation service for her here. And I was to help host it as we were hosting it. And it was the hour for it to start, and people started to come into the church facility. And I had been making preparations all day. And I looked down, and I, I had on khaki shorts and a t-shirt. And I was very dirty, I was filthy, um, and I realized I can't host this event dressed like this. This is inappropriate. But, thank goodness, I remembered I had a pair of khakis in my car. So I went outside to go get the khaki slacks out of my car so that I could be dressed appropriately for the occasion. And so I go outside, and as dreams don't make logical sense, all of a sudden I'm then on the campus of Clemson University, and I'm looking for my car, which is somewhere in one of three huge parking lots. And in my dream, I'm looking at my watch and I'm realizing I only have minutes to get the appropriate clothes and to have those on and to get back and to lead and to speak and to do whatever I was supposed to do. And I couldn't remember where my car was. And I ran from parking lot to parking lot, rows of cars everywhere, and I can't find my car anywhere. Finally, somehow I do. And I put the khakis on and I race back to the church, which is now Clemson Presbyterian Church. Um, it's a dream. Nothing makes sense. And, but I've, as I walk into the church, now appropriately dressed, and as I go up to do my speaking part, everyone is already getting up and walking out of the room. And I can't get their attention. They won't respond to me. It's as if the microphone was cut off, and I failed. I completely failed. Wasn't there, didn't do my job, wasn't dressed right. And I woke up, and I was exhausted and panicked feeling. And there is that brief moment where you have relief, where you're like, oh, thank goodness, none of that is true, none of that is real. Now, why do I tell you that story? I think... Well, I have dreams like that throughout my life of, of, of 
forgetting my cleats, my helmet, my shoulder pads, and it's time to run onto the field to play football and I can't find anything, or of having a paper due, a test due, and I can't find the class. I think you have those kinds of dreams too. And what I think it is, is it is our common fear of being exposed. It's the fear of being found inadequate. It's the fear of being ill-prepared, of not being able to find something or of not knowing something that you should know. These are common dreams or, or nightmares for all of us or for many of us or for most of us. We fear being found a fool. And I tell you that story because I believe that prepares us for for the encounter that Nicodemus has with Jesus. I think he probably lived that dream as he is exposed by Jesus. He is found a fool of spiritual things, yet he is the teacher of Israel. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, listen to this as it unfolds. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in Him. Let's pray that God would give us understanding of His holy word. 
Lord, so much to consider in our passage this morning. No way to consider at all. But we pray that what we do consider would be for our good. That Your Spirit would open our eyes to see what is spiritually true. Our ears to hear what is spiritually true. Our hearts to believe what is eternally true. Comfort Your people. Make us alive, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, this morning we have in our passage two characters. We have two kinds of birth. And we have two poles. Two wooden poles that are referenced. But more on that in a few minutes. First, the first character we have is Jesus. Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Christ. Remember, Christ is not a last name. It's a title. It means the anointed one. And Messiah was the Old Testament term that meant the same. The people of God had been waiting for the Messiah, the Christ, who was promised to finally come. And as we heard through our Advent series, there were signs and wonders and miracles that would authenticate who this Messiah was. They would validate and prove that the Messiah had actually come. And these are the stories that we've considered for numerous weeks now. How Jesus proved Himself to be the Messiah and fulfilled promises, prophecies, miracles, signs, and wonders from the Old Testament, now in the New. He is revealing Himself as Christ through those signs and miracles and through His teaching, which is what we have this morning. Not a miracle, not a wonder, but teaching that was powerful. And in these signs and miracles and in the teaching that Jesus has been doing, He's gaining a lot of attention. There's a lot of people noticing what he is doing and what he is saying. And the religious elite have taken particular interest in Jesus and in these claims that the Messiah had come. Jesus was getting noticed, but he wasn't ready to be noticed so much. And so in our passage here, we find the reference to him and his personal reference being the Son of Man. And that simply was... It was a more ambiguous term. Jesus would be proving Himself to be the Christ, but He wouldn't necessarily use all the titles of Christ at this time. It's as if He is not ready for the attention, not ready for the momentum, because He has things to do. And so in Scripture elsewhere, we see this, it's called the Messianic secret, where Jesus would do a miracle and then tell someone, now don't go tell anybody what I've done. This, like the language of Son of Man, is Jesus' way of slowing things down for His earthly ministry. So Jesus is the first character. The second character in the passage is Nicodemus. He is Israel's teacher. He's a Pharisee. He is elite. He is a credentialed religious scholar, well-respected by all, and a member of the ruling Council. This significant figure, this elite scholar, has been impressed by Jesus. 
He acknowledges in verse 2 that Jesus is a rabbi from God. And it's significant that he uses the term rabbi with Jesus, the carpenter. And he says, we believe. So as Nicodemus has come to Jesus, he has a personal interest, but he seems to be representing the religious elites. Perhaps they have sent him to go and find out more, to draw near to Jesus and try to learn something. And so he's curious to encounter Jesus, but we don't know his motives. He may have some mixed motives. We do know this. The passage goes out of its way to say that he came at night, which is to say he came under the cover of darkness. It was a covert mission. Perhaps he didn't want people to know that he was meeting with Jesus, which would have given further credence to Jesus and attention to Jesus. But Nick comes to Jesus at night. Nick at night. He comes to Jesus and he has questions. He wants to know more, but under the cover of darkness. Now, this may be true in your story or in the story of peoples around you. Have you or the people that you have known shown some degree of interest in Jesus, but almost wanted to do it covertly? I don't want other people to know that I have this spiritual interest. Maybe church online creates an opportunity for that for many. And that can be a good thing. For some, it's going to be easier to listen to a sermon online, I suppose, than to come in person. But whatever the case, you have to come to Jesus to find out who He is. And Nick at night, though he comes under the cover of darkness, he comes into the presence of Jesus, and he would hear things that would tweak him. And that's our second point. Jesus tweaks Nicodemus with truth. Jesus says some hard things, and he unsettles Nicodemus. Now, I use the language of tweaking. Um, I've, I think I've used it here before. Let me explain what I mean. Tweaking is, is like the tweaking of a nose. It smarts. It hurts a little bit. But with Jesus, it's always for your good. And Jesus tweaks his people. Jesus tweaks his church. And here, Nicodemus is tweaked with truth. And here's this encounter of back and forth between Jesus and Nicodemus. And I want to work through this somewhat quickly. But Jesus starts the conversation uh, with, a, with a statement that would make no sense. He says, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. That's in verse 3. This confuses Nicodemus. He's perplexed in verse 4. And he responds with uncertainty and not believing or knowing how it could be true. Jesus then elaborates further in verses 5 through 8. And this would only confuse Nicodemus further. He's further perplexed in verse 9. Jesus says, you must be born again. And the sum of all that dialogue that we read is the older Nicodemus hearing this with earthly ears. Born again. How can one who is old crawl back in their mother's womb and be born again? Born a second time. 
It's puzzling to Nicodemus. And this is the tweak that Jesus would give Nicodemus. You are the teacher of Israel. You're the credentialed one. And you don't understand this? That this is how God has worked? This is how God has always worked? And this is how even in the Old Testament, God promised that He would work? And in this way, Nicodemus is exposed. Jesus said the hard thing, and you should hear it for what it is. It is a tweak. You're supposed to be the teacher of Israel. You're inadequate. You're exposed. You don't have the answers that you should have. You should know these things. And he exposes Nicodemus as falling short of being inadequate, incapable, ill-prepared. He tweaked Nicodemus with truth and for Nicodemus's good. Now I say that, and I say it that way, because I think that many of us think that God would never tweak me. God exists to affirm me, to give me that pat on the back. Well, Jesus here would love Nicodemus with a tweak by saying something hard to him that would drive to the very heart of Nicodemus's problem and his need. He is willing to expose his neediness so that he will know his neediness. And that hurts a little bit. It hurts to be exposed. That's why we all dream about it. That's why we all have dreams of being exposed as ill-prepared, as inadequate, as falling short in some way. We don't want to be exposed. We want to be showed as having it all together. Not having needs, but being the one who provides everything for everybody. And when we're exposed, we know our neediness. And that's why Jesus exposed him. That's why Jesus tweaked him. Have you been tweaked by Jesus? Have you been tweaked by Jesus' people? Have you had hard conversations that stung a little bit? Well, there are different ways to respond to being tweaked. Sometimes on social media, we'll unfriend people. Sometimes in real life, we'll unfriend people. We, we're never going back to that church. We're never going to talk to these people again. Being tweaked can smart a bit. It can hurt. But there are good tweaks. There are good tweaks. There are bad tweaks, but there are good tweaks. Have you been tweaked? Has the gospel tweaked you and exposed your neediness in a way that it hurts a little bit? In a way that it exposes you and embarrasses you a little bit? That's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to be tweaked by truth to be tweaked by the gospel. Matter of fact, good and healthy friendships are willing to tweak each other, not just to affirm each other. So consider your friendships and consider the kind of friend that you are. Are you able to lovingly, truthfully, kindly speak true things to your friends? Or do you clam up? And will you receive being tweaked? Will you receive that from your friends believing that it can be for your good. If it's exposing your neediness and sending you to the gospel, it is a good thing. So Jesus tweaks Nicodemus with truth, and we should be willing to be tweaked as well. Now, fourthly, as we get into the real heart and the soul, the spirituality of the sermon, and, and, uh, our fourth point is this. Jesus preaches the gospel. 
Wouldn't it be neat to hear Jesus preach the gospel? Well, he's about to in short, simple words. In verse 14, listen again to what he says. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in Him. Jesus is preaching the gospel. He's preaching the gospel from the Old Testament. And it is very confusing to understand. So let me share with you the summary of some of what I learned this week. This is a reference to Numbers chapter 21. And we're not going to read that, but you go look at it if you want to be baffled a bit. In Numbers chapter 21, the Israelites are grumbling against God because they have to eat manna every single day. And they've grumbled against God's kind and gracious provision. And they're tired of it. And they want to go back to Egypt. They'd rather go back where things were different because of the mundane life that they're living and the same old food that they're having to eat all the time. It doesn't take much to harden the human heart. And because they grumbled against God and His grace and His mercy, the Lord burned with anger. And the passage says that the Lord sent snakes, fiery serpents, to judge the people. And many were bitten, and many died. And this would lead the people to understand and believe they needed relief. They needed kindness. They needed help. And here's where it just gets difficult for me to understand. The Lord tells them to do something you just don't expect the Lord to ever tell them to do. And that is to craft a serpent out of bronze or copper or some alloy. Uh, Various commentators believe it was different things, but it was metal. To craft a metal snake and to lift it up on a pole up high. And that when the people who were bitten would look to it, they would be healed. Now, in Exodus chapter 32, these people had crafted uh, a golden calf and had worshipped it. They had looked to it. And this brought about the Lord's anger. It's very... I don't have an answer for you how all this works together. And I read several commentaries this week on this, and nobody really has a good answer as to the, the hows of it, but the why we do have an understanding of. And that is because of Jesus' commentary here when He uses it to preach Himself and to preach the gospel. Somehow, some way, the lifting up of a serpent on a pole would symbolize the lifting up of the Son of Man on a pole. Because remember, we have two poles in our text. The first pole lifted up a serpent. The people were to look to it. And if they looked to it, they would find healing and relief. And Jesus says in the same way as Moses said, the Son of Man must be lifted up on a pole. And when He's looked to, His people will be saved. They'll be relieved of their sins. And so Jesus preaches the gospel. He says, look to Me. And we're called to look to Jesus. 
Now that reminds me this week of the conversion story of Charles Spurgeon. I don't know if you know this story, but, but very quickly, uh, you need to see how he was called to look to Jesus. When Charles Spurgeon was 15 years old, he was on his way to church by foot. But a blizzard, a snowstorm hit, and he couldn't find his way all the way to the church. So he stopped short of where he was going, and he ducked into a little Methodist church, a primitive Methodist church on Artillery Street. And he recounted this story hundreds of times in his life, in his ministry, and in his sermons. But this is one excerpt of a time when he recorded it in writing. And it says this, I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm into my life on a Sunday morning. Now that'll preach. We need to give thanks for the inconveniences and how God can use them in our lives. He said, when I could go no further in the snow, I turned down a court and I came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. And in that chapel, there were only a dozen or 15 people. Not a very significant seeming church or a time of ministry, you might say. The minister did not even come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. And so a poor man, a shoemaker, a tailor, or something of that sort, he went up into the pulpit to preach. And he was obliged to stick to the text, which was Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22. Look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. And then Spurgeon says of that sermon that it was poorly preached, poorly delivered, because he wasn't even a minister that was delivering it. He says he could not even pronounce the words correctly. But that did not matter. matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope in that text for me. And he said something like this. My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now that does not take a deal, a great deal of effort. You don't have to lift your foot. You don't have to lift your finger. You just have to look. Well, a man may not need to go to college to learn to look. You may not be the biggest of fools, and yet you can still look. A man need not be worth $1,000 a year to look. Anyone can look. A child can look. But this is what the text says. Look unto me. And then the minister said these words. Look unto me, I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I am hanging on the cross. Look, I am dead and buried. Look to me, I rise again. Look to me, I ascend. I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, look to me, look to me. And as he goes on and tells the story, he says that that minister poorly delivering a sermon of a beautiful truth of Scripture, then looked at Spurgeon himself as one of the 12 or 15 people in the room and realized that he was a guest, which is not hard to do with so few in the room, and said out loud to him, You look miserable, young man. You need to look to Jesus. And Charles Spurgeon, 15 years old, who had grown up in the church, around the church, had some small degree of faith, 
was cut to his heart and says that it was as if the cloud was gone, the darkness had rolled away, and at that moment I saw the sun. And I could have risen that moment and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ. Because I looked to Jesus. The Son of Man must be lifted up. And all who look to Him will be healed. They will be saved from their sins. Jesus preaches the gospel from an obscure text, a confusing text. But it is the simplest of messages. Look to Him. Now, one more point. And here's the real soul of the sermon. Jesus says, you must be born again. You must be born again. This is the confusing uh, part of of Jesus' words to Nicodemus. Nicodemus understands none of this. But he says, you must be born from above. You must have a spiritual birth, a heavenly birth, a birth not of the flesh, a birth not of this world. And you know, we were prepared for this understanding again in the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 to 27. This is what we were told in the Old Covenant. The Lord said, for I will take... This is verse 24. Verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. You see, in the Old Testament, God promised that He would have to do something in His people. He would have to take out their heart of flesh and excuse me, take out their heart of stone and give them a new heart of flesh, one that could live spiritually. Jesus says you must be born again, that we need new life that comes in to these bodies that we have, a new life that brings a new heart, new eyes, a new mind, new hands, all with a new purpose. Jesus blows Nicodemus away, the one with all the credentials, the scholar who could speak over and past everyone. Jesus blows him away just with a few sentences and a few concepts that the spiritually elite cannot understand because he doesn't have a new heart. He doesn't have new life. He needs it. Now, the wonder and the beauty of all this, as we see the truths of Scripture come together, is that this is how God has always worked. He works in His people. He calls the people to Himself. He works in them and gives them a new heart. And now, as He calls these people, these people now, they become like a family. A family of God. Brothers and sisters in the faith brought to life by God Himself. 
And the word in the New Testament for all these people who are equally changed, equally transformed, made to be a family, the word is that they're the the called out ones. And that word is the church. They're the church of God, the people of God, the family of God, who've been called out of darkness and into light. They've been called and equipped with the Spirit of God to have new hearts, new eyes, new minds, new hands, new purpose. That's the church according to Scripture. We're a people who look to Jesus in faith, and the Spirit of God comes to life and works in us in such a way that we're new creatures, not of our own doing, not able to fix ourselves, not able to muster up faith, but given it by God Himself. Like the wind of heaven that blows and brings life into old, dead, dry bones. So God is at work calling a people to Himself that He would make into His church. Not a perfect people. Really a pretty pathetic people, to be honest. If you look at the people of Scripture alone, not talking about people that you know, you look at the people of Scripture. A pathetic people who didn't deserve to be given life. But God mysteriously, miraculously, beautifully breathed life into the ones that He calls to Himself. Jesus says you must be born again, that you must look to Him in faith to be healed. I'll close with this story. One of our hymn writers uh, John Barrage from the 1700s in the United Kingdom. We sing uh, one of his hymns every once in a while. It's called, Jesus Cast a Look on Me. But I learned of John Barrage this week in something that I read. And it's a beautiful story. I, I, I won't take the time to tell you the full. But the short of it is this. He was a minister of the gospel before he was transformed by the Spirit of God. He was in the church and around the church but not of the church. And he would come to look to Jesus and Jesus alone after he was a minister. And that happened a lot. But he said of his own ministry that before he was converted, he would always preach about sanctification. He would preach about change. He would preach about obedience. But when the Spirit of God transformed him and he looked to Jesus when he was born again, his preaching changed. He started preaching about justification, about the Son of Man being lifted up on a pole for the sins of His people. And when He made that change in His preaching, His church started to grow, and the people started to change. And He became an avid evangelist who would share the goodness of the mercy of God in His own life to the point that on His own epitaph, on His gravestone, He called on those who read it, to be born again. The heart of John chapter 3 and the call of Jesus that we must be born again, that continued in his life to the very end and it continues in his death on his epitaph, on his gravestone. Let me read you this epitaph and consider what you would put on your own. He said this, 
Here lie the remains of John Berridge, late vicar of Everton and and an itinerant servant of Jesus Christ, who loved his master and his work, and after running on his errands many years, was called up to wait on him above. And then he says this, Reader, art thou born again? There is no salvation without new birth. I was born in sin in February 1716. I remained ignorant of my fallen state till 1730. Lived proudly on faith and works for salvation till 1754. Was admitted to the ministry in 1755, but fled to Jesus alone for refuge in 1756. Fell asleep in Christ in 1793. Reader, are you born again? Even in his death, he's evangelizing people. Jesus said it is imperative, necessary, required. You must be born again. The story of the church in the New Testament as it flows is about a people called by God, redeemed by God, and equipped with His Spirit to be born again. Not able to fix themselves, but by God and His Spirit in them, able to be the church. That's what we'll look at in the weeks to come. How the Spirit of God enables, empowers, and calls and equips a people to be the church in the world. But you must be born again. Let's pray. Our Father and our God... Would you bring new life into dead bones? Would you give faith and trust in Jesus? Would we look to Jesus? Because mercy is found in Him alone. The one who is lifted up on a pole. The Son of Man. That our sins might be put to death once and for all. Lord, I pray for our church family. Just as we heard from Spurgeon, that it's able to be in the church and around the church, but not truly of the church. And as John Barrage has reminded us, the same truth. You can be in and around the church, but not of the church. Lord, would you work in our hearts that if that's true of us, we might look to you in faith and that your spirit might bring newness of life. Do this, we ask and we pray in Jesus' name and for the sake of his church. Amen.